0: Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible.
1: Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith.
2: Does God promote genocide? That is the question that we will answer on this episode of Word Matters. I am Brandon Smith the spokesperson for the CSB, alongside my co-host, uh, Trevin Wax, the uh, Bible and reference publisher at b uh, especially of the CSB. And um, we are going to talk today about a confusing passage. Uh, we're going to talk about Deuteronomy, but we'll, there's a lot of places where this kind of idea shows up. And so uh, we brought on a guest with us, uh, Joshua Butler. He serves as a pastor at Imago Day Community in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he has two books called The Pursuing God, and The Skeletons in God's Closet, which are both um, just great examples of how to take confusing or controversial ideas or passages and uh, make them accessible, which is something that Trevor and I really believe in, and that's why we do this podcast. So uh, we're excited to have our friend Josh on today because he is great at this, and he'll be really helpful. So Josh, thanks for hopping on with us.
0: Definitely. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here.
1: Okay, so the question of genocide this is a tough one. Um, you you know, you get people doing the read the Bible through the year plan and um, they may get bogged down in Leviticus and it might take them a while to get through Leviticus or they might get to Deuteronomy, Joshua, some other passages of scripture and then be shocked to see that God is telling um the children of Israel to destroy whole cities, even nations to to you know to Uh, make sure that they wipe out these people, drive out these people. So uh, no one really denies that this is clearly reported in the scripture. The question is, what do we do with it? How does it uh, fit with the overall picture that we know of with God, uh, the picture that we see in the life and teaching of Jesus, especially Mm. when it comes to um, nonviolence and things like that. So this is the question that is raised by some of these passages.
2: Yeah, so let me, uh, I'll read one specific example here, uh, and then we will, and there's a couple of other ones, but this is a good one to kind of springboard off of. Uh, So this is Deuteronomy 7 in the CSB. And uh, I'll hop around a little bit uh, in this passage, but I just want to give us kind of the gist of, of what's happening here. And so, um, and just remember that this is right after God tells these Israelites that they will face uh, several armies more powerful than they are. Uh, and then he comes, comes in here. And when the Lord, your God, delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them, and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do with them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their astral poles, and burn their carved images. And know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to pay back directly the one who hates him. So keep the command, the statutes and ordinances that I'm giving you to follow today. And you see this again, Deuteronomy 20, 1 Samuel 15, a couple other places. And so, so there, again, there's no getting around this passage, Trevin. I mean, it's, it's very clear. Destroy the cities, show them no mercy. Uh, this isn't allegorical or some sort of illustration. This is pretty clearly... What he's saying. So
1: true. In fact, show them no mercy is the name of a of a good book. Uh, one of the counterpoints yeah. books from Zondervan on the the um, uh, I think four views. I think it's mm-hmm. four views of uh, Canaanite genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this the the first view would just say, well, the Israelites recorded this and they did this, but they were basically mistaken in believing that God commanded this, right? So this idea comes out of the school of thought that the God of the Old Testament. Um, appears to be vengeful and angry, but with the fuller revelation we have from the God of the New Testament, as we see in Jesus, we see mercy, we see compassion, um, we see nonviolence. So the the way that you put these two things together is that you don't. You say the Old Testament um, writers, the children of Israel, were in these cases wrong. They misunderstood, they mistook this. And so the Canaanite genocide is a stain on the history of uh, God's people. It's not divine revelation. It's not a command from uh, God. It's a misunderstanding on the Israelites' part, because what we know of the merciful and loving God we see in Jesus is that he would not command what we see in these passages.
2: Yeah. And then um, a second view is kind of a um, a little bit of a mediation, but it's, it takes a little more seriously the, the truth that God actually commanded this. Uh, and So defenders of this view, like Eugene Merrill, um, who has a chapter in that book that, that Trevin referenced, um, they say that God commanded these types of wars, but only during a pre- brief time of history. So he definitely commanded this, uh, but it wasn't for all time. And so there's kind of a few points that, that they'll bring up. Uh, this this type of holy war uh, demonstrated God's sovereignty above all other gods and rulers. Uh, so him telling them to go do this was an act of him showing uh, how powerful he is, uh, especially in, in relation to the fact that that the Israelites were facing more powerful armies than themselves. Uh, holy war is a specific demonstration of judgment against a, a, an extremely corrupt culture. Uh, holy war uh, enabled God to keep his promises to Israel, right? So he said, I'm going to protect you from idolatry. I'm going to give you this land, etc., etc." And so this is a way that he did that by destroying other nations. Uh, and then holy war is a declaration that Yahweh was a God of both grace and wrath. And you notice uh, even in this passage, he says, "Look, I'm faithful to those who follow me, uh, but I will pay back those who hate me." Uh, and so, so again, God did command these types of wars in this view, but only for a time. Uh, and more than that, it's it's not because he's some sort of you know genocidal maniac who just loves wiping out other nations, uh, but it's actually him showing his sovereignty through grace and judgment.
1: Okay, a third view is that um, uh, this type of holy war is sanctioned in Scripture, but it's it's the start of a pattern that leads to the final judgment in Revelation. So similar to the previous view, but kind of teases out the implications differently, uh, where you see this this continuity throughout Scripture. So instead of emphasizing that it's for a brief time, it emphasizes the pattern that is set in, in these stories. So... Um, you'll see Trimper Longman, for example, is uh, one of the proponents of this view. He has this timeline. So first, God fights against the human in enemies of Israel, right? As the Old Testament develops. Second, God fights against Israel. You actually see that as well. Third, God will fight in the future as a warrior. You have the prophecies in the Old Testament. Four, Jesus Christ fights against the spiritual powers and authorities. You see that in the New Testament. And then finally, in Revelation, God fights the final battle. So you see that pattern of God fighting evil, advancing redemptive history in various types of war. But it's a pattern throughout Scripture, rather than showing the disconnect between that time and this time. So those are those are three, I'd say, the three major views that that we have here.
2: Yeah. So Josh. Um, you wrote on this in uh, Skeletons in God's Closet, a um, really, really helpful uh, chapter on that. So why don't you uh, kind of start giving us a little bit, uh, tease out a little bit of what your view is, what you think makes the most sense of Scripture.
0: Definitely, yeah. Thanks, you guys. I, I, I would hold the view number three, the one where, you know, I do think that what happened with Israel and Canaan was very unique. Uh, I do think it was a, a type or a foreshadowing of kind of God's eschatological or final judgment, where he sort of tears down Babylon, kind of this picture of global empire and revelation, and, and establishes his kingdom. Uh, but as we look at the Old Testament, uh, you know, yes, critics of Christianity love to use passages like these to attack God's character and kind of depict him as like this violent maniac. Uh, but there's three observations that I think can can help us get a clearer picture of what's going on here. Uh, the first is to recognize that uh, these, I like to call them, drastic marching orders, right? Like, utterly destroy them, show no mercy, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Uh, the first observation is that these take place primarily in the context of cities. Now, we tend to think of cities today as like civilian population centers, right? Like I walk outside my front door and I see, uh, you know, kids playing in the front yard and there's a school down the street, a hospital. Uh, but in the ancient Near East, things were different. Uh, cities were small, fortified military outposts that guarded the roads leading up to the villages where the people were. So when we hear of Israel kind of utterly destroying a city and not leaving any of its inhabitants alive to breathe, uh, we should have in mind primarily a military engagement, not a civilian massacre, or they're taking out Canaan's defense systems and uh, its defenders. doesn't mean violence is not happening, but the context is a context of military engagement, uh, rather than kind of the the caricature. Right? The second observation would be that it's helpful to recognize here uh, what I like to call ancient trash talk, uh, the way ancient people in this region <laughs> like to talk about war. So you kind of think of it like, if, for example, you step into a locker room after the basketball game, and you hear the players saying things like, man, we annihilated them, we wiped the floor with them, they couldn't get a thing past us, had nothing on us. If you took what they're saying, uh, the talk kind of 100% literally, you would think the score was 120 to 0. Uh, but then you go out, <laughs> you know, and you see the scoreboard, it's like 120 to 105, and you're like, yes, it was a decisive victory. I mean, just not quite as extreme as the rhetoric alone would lead you to believe. And similarly, this is the way people in the ancient Near East like to talk about war. Uh, They like to use exaggerated war rhetoric that at first glance, it can kind of sound like genocidal, but then you read on in their history books, and you find that next year, the year after that, the same peoples who were supposedly wiped off the planet are back again, strong as ever, still causing trouble. Uh, that's, that's
1: That's the case in the scriptures as well, right? I mean, when you do. You have cases where uh, we know that the children of Israel. Um, uh, you could you could see that rhetoric in one chapter, and then a few chapters later realize that it must need to be interpreted a different way. Yeah.
0: Exactly, because I would say, you know, that that historical backdrop is helpful to, to have. But even if we didn't have that, I believe Scripture itself, I think the Old Testament demands to be read this way. Uh, there's really two major battles where this language gets used. Uh, you know, you have four, four scenarios God saying, go do this. These two major battles in Joshua 9 to 12 and First Samuel 15 where it happens. And uh, there's a place where they're looking back retrospectively and saying, we did it. It happened. Uh, but all you have to do in those two battle scenes is go a little further in the story. And you find that the same folks who were supposedly wiped out uh um, are back again, still strong, still causing lots of trouble. And I don't, you know, some would go, well, does that mean that the Bible is lying? I go, no, it doesn't mean the Bible is lying. Kind of the same way that uh, in the locker room, you wouldn't say to the basketball players, like, why are you telling lies in the locker room? Uh, you would recognize, you know, it's an understood way of speaking. And similarly with, you know, kind of as we interpret scripture with hermeneutics, I think one of the first questions we have to ask is, what's kind of the, the genre? What's right. the how to, how's the language being used? And and we see here, I believe they're using the genre of ancient military war history, talking with uh, kind of the, the rhetoric that w- would have been understood in the time. Uh, final observation here, I, I think, is this. Uh, the primary language that's used for Canaan in the Old Testament is driving them out not killing them off. Uh, those drastic marching orders are really pretty rare. They show up in four main places like I mentioned. Uh, but the phrase drive out, it's the primary language used for the Canaanites. So it shows up more than 50 times in the Old Testament, and this is the language of eviction, not murder, right? Like if you're a rowdy dancer who gets bounced out of the club or whatever, you know. The bad news is you got kicked out. Uh, the good news is you're still alive. And and in the biblical story, this language of eviction, of driving them out, it isn't new. It's it's the the same language that, you know, the first place it shows up is in the Garden of Eden. Uh, When Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and they're, they're driven out, they're banished from the Garden. And I'd suggest something really similar is happening here. Like Canaan has unleashed the destructive power of sin into God's good Garden. And now they are being driven out by God, who's like this good gardener chasing away the hooligans who've been trashing his vineyard for too long, right? And Later in the story, when Israel rebels, Israel isn't immune from this. We're we're told Israel became as bad as Canaan ever was. And Israel herself is driven out, too. The the same language gets used. And it's the language of exile. Uh, Israel doesn't get a free pass, but is eventually removed by God, driven out from the land through Babylon. And all, all this, it doesn't mean that there's not violence. Uh, God is truly kind of throwing down on Canaan, right? Uh, just that it's not exaggerated, kind of like the popular characters often make it out to be. And in fact, I argue that God is actually raising the bar on ancient warfare practice, uh, setting standards through Israel that were way more humane than the standard warfare practice of the ancient world around
2: them. Yeah, that's, re- that's really helpful. I think, too, um, you know, the the idea, it's called the Canaanite genocide and I think the word—I think you're—you're you're kind of pointing out here too this idea that the the genocide is kind of a misnomer. It's kind of a an exaggerated word that we're using that makes it almost sound like God is Hitler, right? Like he's trying to wipe out this mm-hmm. entire race. And, and uh, so you do a good job of pointing out there that, that look these people are still there at the end of the day, right? It's not like this just the Canaanites ceased to exist, um, but that there is actually something more going on. Um, so so what do we do with this? Okay, let's let's move into the throughout Scripture a little bit. You said you you kind of take the idea that this is a pattern. Um, so first of all, how do we, how do we kind of square this with, okay, why doesn't God just give these people more time to repent or why isn't he sending the Israelites in as evangelists, right? Or something like that. (laughs) Um, and then, and so how does that, you know, how does that kind of play into the big picture uh, of scripture and, and ultimately the eschatological look at judgment?
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things I'm really struck by is actually the patience of God in this scenario. You mentioned, why doesn't God give him more time to repent? And if we go back to Genesis 15, we actually see a foreshadowing what's coming. God has this conversation with Abraham, and uh, basically say, hey, your people know your descendants are going to go into Egypt, you know, 400 years in enslavement and being brutally oppressed. And if I'm Abraham, I would be like... God, why? Like, why not now? And God's like, well, you, in essence, like, you can't come into the land yet because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full extent. Yeah. And so there's a sense that God is being patient for. 400 years, like four centuries is a really long time. And if you're Israel during that time, your question is not, God, if you are good, why would you ever intervene? (laughs) You know, like your question is, God, because you are good, why do you wait so long? And and I think that's one of the driving questions in scripture is particularly if you are the uh, oppressed like Israel was, if you're getting trampled by the mighty powerhouses of the world the question in scripture, this question of how long, O oh Lord, in the midst of dark times—it's a major theme, and it's one ultimately of hope that because God is good, He's patient uh, with kind of the empire, you know, structural injustice, systemic evil, kind of the gnarly things that uh, we have unleashed in God's good world. Uh, but also because God is good, His patience will not last forever. Like God will arise to uh, tear down all that stands opposed to His good kingdom and to establish. Uh, his rule in the in its place.
1: Now, Josh, um, nothing that we've said here is necessarily going to resolve all of the conflict or the issues that people might have with this passage. I, I, with these types of passages, I I do think it it's important for us in a couple of things as we're we're thinking about this. Um, one is to recognize that uh, the fact that so many people, including Christians, in our time, in our era, in our culture. Um, would take issue with this and see this as a stumbling block. I think says something about our culture as well, not just about the the passages mm. um, uh, of scripture that we're that we're discussing. Um, you know, th- there are questions about that we should ask: why why throughout church history, or why even in the in the time of the New Testament, why why did did Jesus not seem to push back against this? I mean, it, you, mm. you, there could have always been this. You know, you he- you've heard it said, but I say unto you from Jesus, but it, this wasn't a live issue then. Uh, throughout many eras of church history has not been a live issue, um, and in, especially even now in certain contexts in, in the global church, especially in persecuted areas, this is um, uh, not seen with sort of the the kind of, I don't want to say hand-wringing, but just sort of the, uh, the, the, the idea of God judging is part and parcel of good news in a lot of um, Christian history and a lot of uh, mm. the church in in the West. So I, I I appreciate the fact that in the book, you you try to help us see the side of this, the surprising good news of of the fact that God is going to judge, is going to judge evil. And I and I would just add one thing that you mentioned in the book. And I don't know that you use this exact illustration, but it's one thing that has has really um, impacted the way I think about this. You you say that we tend to have this image when we come to these passages of sort of. God and His people as the great empire, and here they are crushing these uh, poor, defenseless, helpless um, uh, people in these cities. Whereas what you, what you actually—it's kind of—if if we were to use the Star Wars metaphor, it's the empire crushing the rebellion. When actually, <laughs> it, the the picture in Scripture is no—the the, the children of Israel, these raggedy ex-slaves moving to the wilderness <laughs> are the one, they're the rebellion going up against the great empire of the world that has set itself mm. against God and against his purposes um, and winning, you know? So, so mm. it, it's, it's really also, a scene if we're going to talk about patterns of the great reversal of God bringing the mighty down mm. from their thrones yeah. and exalting those of humble estate as Mary sings in the Magnificat. Mm. you know? So uh, I just, I, would say uh, we to put this into the context of uh, church history Global Christianity, I think, helps us a little bit see um, kind of where we come from and maybe ask some questions of our own blinders that lead us to, to see some passages as problematic when other Christians throughout the ages have not.
0: Definitely. You know, I found, I think, like you said, many people tend to approach these pastors and, and just sort of assume, you know, that holy war here would be, you know, our mainstream picture is it's the strong kind of using God to justify their conquest of the weak. But I think we actually see an opposite picture in scripture. It's God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong, of the strong when it's kind of been going on for too long. Um, and so these themes, like you said, Israel is depicted as the last and the least of the nations. They're kind of this weak underdog who've been getting trampled right. kind of on the outskirts of the empire. For ages, and as they go in, they're outgunned and outmanned. Like Canaan's got like horses and chariots, kind of like the ancient AK-47s and jet fighters of the ancient world, you know. And uh, and they've got like strategy, and Israel's strategies are just ridiculous, you know. Like uh, you think of something like Jericho, where she comes up to the Jericho's walls, and it's like, okay, God, how are, this heavily fortified military? But how are we going to take this down? And God's like, All right, I want you to march around the, the walls for seven days and blow trumpets. And you're just like, that is a really stupid battle strategy. That's Very a really strange strategy. Battle strategy, True. You know, uh, but I think it's 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 purposeful on God's part. There's this picture where they're entering in in a posture of worship, and they're trusting God to be the primary agent who's fighting on their behalf. And we, it's not just with Jericho; we see that continuously. Uh, how the strategies are often uh, fairly ridiculous, but they're designed to show that God is the primary agent, sort of tearing down. Uh, the empire and establishing his kingdom, kind of handing over his garden to this weak and wandering nation of homeless slaves. Um, though I also look at how um, it's also not uh, the weak using God to justify their conquest of the strong, which kind of feels like terrorism today. You know, the, the terrorists yeah. tend to think like, we're the weak and we're going to fight, I mean, you know, we, we will fight for God against the strong. And Israel's motto is not, we will fight for God. It's God will fight for us. Yeah. And if he doesn't we don't stand a chance. Like uh, God is the primary agent doing the eviction, uh, though Israel is brought in to kind of participate. In kind of the last after God's kind of done all the heavy lifting and knocked out ninety-five percent of the, the the work. You know, so Israel is brought into, but it's God is depicted as the primary uh, agent, and I think that's also a source of hope of going in the meantime. While we wait for God, we can uh, entrust kind of ultimate. um, you know, ultimate vengeance or ultimate, you know, for the oppressed who are crushed, it's really hard to not retaliate unless you believe that ultimately justice is coming. And because we believe that God is coming, uh, we don't have to take, you know, retaliation to our own hands because we know that God in his goodness will set things right in a way that's appropriate. I think it can yeah. empower us to live.
2: Yeah. And I think as we yeah. kind of go into uh, the end of the podcast, we always try to say, you know, how would you preach or teach this? And I think you're actually already taking us there. So, so what would be a couple of main points when you're talking about having hope and um, not, not retaliating, not taking vengeance into your own hands? Um, are these some of the things and what other things would you kind of highlight if you're preaching or teaching this passage? So somebody's listening and they're uh, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, maybe even sitting down with their kids talking about a passage like this, what would, what would be some pointers you would give them?
0: Yeah, great. You know, a few big ones. One, you know, I think man, like we see a God who is a God of the underdog. (laughs) If we really kind of look at Israel and and I think there's a foreshadowing here of of Christ who, uh, you know, the cross looks weak, but is ultimately the the center through which God overturns the world, you know? And so uh, I I think there's a uh, celebration of the God who arises on behalf of the oppressed. And I think there are themes of uh, working for justice and anticipating that. Uh, I think themes of hope, you know, like in a time where, uh, you know, as we look, I work internationally with our partnerships and you just see stuff at times that I come home and cry and, you know, it, it, it can feel overwhelming the weight of uh, some of the gnarly things that happen in our world. You look at places like Aleppo right now and uh, and it's been helpful for me to kind of have a framework that goes, uh, you know, God is being patient. And so that's that's because of his goodness that this is you know space for this to happen now. But his patience will not last forever. And like you said, Trevin, I think you know I live in a urban Western twenty first century city, kind of seeing ourselves in this story. Like we tend to be, you know, more the the elite, you know, like at the heights of sure. of Canaan or Babylon, you know, and, and recognizing it may not. It can feel usually when I find folks that have a hard time with these passages, they were usually coming from the heights of. Um, civilization or over power, but uh, that recognizing, man, I think this is hope for the global church. If we kind of zoom out and go, um, dude, the people around the world, this is an immense source of hope. That God's victory is coming.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, that is that is really super helpful, and I think we, I think this is uh, a great way for us to kind of break this down for people. So, uh, thanks so much for jumping on with us and helping us through this passage.
0: Thanks, you guys. Been a
2: blast. All right, Trevin, thanks as always for hosting with me, and thank you all for listening. We will see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening. Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages, but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.